1: Hello, welcome back to Full Time with Meg Linehan. You are listening to a show all about women's soccer on The Athletic Podcast Network. I'm Meg, your host, and I'm a national staff writer at The Athletic covering the NWSL and the U.S. women's national team. The summer series is done. I am back from Texas. It is a lovely 75 degrees outside at home with like 30% humidity. It's actually, you know, like weather I can handle. Anyway, thank you for the patience as we delayed this episode by a day to allow me to travel home, but also record on Wi-Fi that actually worked as opposed to my hotel. So first, Steph Young joins me as we attempt to process our feelings about the incoming U.S. Women's National Team Olympic roster, and then Paul Tenorio joins both of us with all the latest on the Olivia Moultrie vs. NWSL lawsuit. The other benefit of delaying the episode by the day is all of that broke last night. As always, your quick reminder for me that if you would like to support this podcast and our coverage of women's soccer at The Athletic, you can always sign up for your new subscription at theathletic.com/slash full time. There's always a promo there. So between the games and this Olivia Moultrie news, we are we are all news today. So let's just get right to it. Here's Steph. Okay, so I survived, I don't know what, 10 days in Texas. Um, you <laughs> you got to watch from home. I will say like Austin was, was lovely. I did very no exploring in Austin because it was always over 100 degrees, but the experience of, but just Texas in general in June as a very sad new Englander (laughs) who does not handle heat. Well, I, I did struggle at times. Not going to lie. So yeah, I think I texted you early on that there's something in particular, maybe about Houston Like that area specifically of Texas that can short circuit uh, a little new Englander's brain. Yeah, it was. I I spent a lot of time in the hotel room in the AC watching Euros. Like I would just wake up and be like, okay, I guess I'm just going to watch soccer and do work for many hours Mm -hmm. and then go to a stadium and watch soccer and do work for many hours. And that was that was really the existence in Texas. It's it's not just the weather. It's like the city layout, the vibe, the people, the food. Like sometimes in good ways. I, yeah. I I miss a lot of the food from the south that I can't quite seem to replicate up here. But yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's I, I we were joking, like, okay, we're gonna process our feelings <laughs> about this <laughs> roster <laughs> via podcast, right? I mean, we yeah. got three games and I think it's interesting because so Heather O'Reilly, right, on the show last week, and she's saying, Okay, you know, I might have I maybe I got my spot because I had this really good performance late, right? And it's mm-hmm. the most like four mind presence <laughs> for the coaches. Like they're like, Oh yeah, Heyo had that had that banger, right? Like we gotta right. we gotta take her. I I think that the approach with Vlako and Ninofsky is probably honestly slightly different. <laughs> Just he, he does seem like, you know, again, he has his binders. He has Leslie Nope. Um, okay. What I know that you wrote basically kind of like essentially tiers of players, but was there any player to you that you saw them in these three games and you were like, oh, if there's anyone who played their way into this roster right now, it's this person. I wanted to say that was Christy Mewis over the course of like at least the last two games. The game against Nigeria was a little rough. Like Vico has said, the problems that we're seeing in the final third were certainly on display there. Um, But she did her job in the same way that, for example, Lynn Williams does her job. The rest of the team may not capitalize, but Lynn Williams does her job. (laughs) <laughs> you know christy mewis did her job yeah she um she played back and forth across like that left half space um she was really aggressive getting into the box she was creative looking to combine she helped set up Lindsay haran and her own sister a uh, couple times <laughs> which was very you know for personal reasons delightful and she's willing to take risks in front of the box where she's like not searching for the perfect setup she's just like let me do this thing Bing, bing, boom. And if it works, I'm the hero. And if it doesn't, I try again. Yeah. Um, I find it interesting that you think Christy didn't necessarily play her way in, whereas I felt after those couple of games, I was like, I don't know. And maybe, again, this is the problem of, is this just me? Is this, am I actually anticipating Vlaco right? Or, but for me, the big question I think has always been, Christy Mewis versus Katerina Macario for that kind of like potential, honestly, probably like number 18 spot on the roster. Right. Like this is also like the fact that we're, we've got the competition for these last final spots too. And the world cup roster is the same way. Right. But like, ultimately these players might be more role players than anything else, or this is a development opportunity. Right. That sort of thing. Christy Mewis helps you win now. Yeah. Katerina Macario, I think potentially could help you win now, but I think is a much longer term play. But if you, if you need, again, that kind of like aggressive presence in a midfield, you put yeah. Christy Mewis into that game. Like you can overload defenses if you put Christy Mewis into a game. And for me, I think that really provided the extra step of like, okay, no, actually, because I've been very like Katerina Macario high this entire time. But fundamentally, if you want to win, and I think if you want to add something spicy to the midfield, <laughs> the solution right now at least is Christy Mewis. And that's not a slight to Katerina Macario, who I think would immediately be be an alternate, right? And still get that kind of tournament experience. But just in terms of winning games, Christy mulis for me is is kind of like that final pick. Right. You make a point about alternates and experience. BlackGo talked to media about having to balance experience versus development, which is so rough at the Olympics with such a a short roster. So, yeah, the alternate space is probably going to be the space where that development actually gets to happen. And I think you and I both agree that Macario's ceiling is higher than Christy Mios's. Like in two or three years, she's going to be, we are going to be like, Oh yeah. Thank you. Thank God this kid stuck with it and like pursued playing for the United States instead of yeah. Brazil. Like I'm so relieved. Um but like you said, it's performed now. Is Katarina Macario going to consistently output Macario like ceiling performances in six weeks in Japan? I'm I can't bet for sure, but you know what? I would bet for sure that Christy Lewiswis can consistently deliver that kind of aggressive creative um dynamic movement performance yeah. one of one of Laco's favorite phrases is known <laughs> known quantities, right yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking known quantities. and I think we know what Christy Lewisis can do at this point. and that's not yeah. to say like, I mean, again, And I think both of us have been saying this since the beginning, but like, there's not necessarily a wrong answer here, right on this roster. There might be a more perfect one, but there is not a wrong, like you're not, there's really honestly like no way that this roster is not (laughs) going to be fine. Like we're having a lot of angst over something that is fundamentally probably going to be completely fine. Right. While I was like almost pacing back and forth in my office, like a little shark, (laughs) <laughs> trying to like agonizing over this article, which is going to be moot soon. <laughs> By the way, Brazil and Japan dropped their rosters today on record day. I'm like, Vlaco, or basically, like, Lord, I see what you've done for others, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you could free us from this, <laughs> please. Yeah, and so I was agonizing, and it's not because I was like, Oh, this person is not good enough for this person, it was like, because everybody there's kind of like an argument for why they could go. What is the limit? And we don't have access to that data that's going to show us that that final two, 3% that maybe they're relying on to shift people around in their priority order. Yeah. No, it's, again, it's just, I I thought what Becky Sauerbrunn said after the game was really interesting. Just, you know, I, I asked her, how do you as a captain kind of support the players at this point of view, right? And what they're looking for is just honesty like they want to know how this is going to go for them, but also like what held them back, right? Like whether that is, but I think one of the things that they're probably being evaluated on that we are never, ever, ever going to hear, see, be have any sense of what's happening is if Vlako and is giving them, you know, like essentially missions, right? Whether it's in cell or games or training of like, I need you to have this positioning or I like, I need to see this movement off the ball. I need to see it consistently in the NWL. Like, we're never going to know if they're achieving that or not. And that might be a factor in this decision, too. Like, if, if he's watching Christy Mewis play in Cell games and he's looking for specific things that she is doing in games, potentially off the ball, that isn't even on a broadcast, right? Like, that's stuff that is being evaluated. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's a mistake to just look at these three games as yes. the totality oh, yeah. of like final valuation. Um, Blacko said multiple times he watches all NWSL games. Like he, Blacko is always watching. <laughs> There's obviously camp stuff that's going on. For example, all the Tobin Heath evaluation, he's kind of given us clues here and there, right? Of Where she is in her recovery, where they're, he said they're trying to include her in as much stuff as possible, but that clearly means that she's not ready for a full contact, full 90. Um you know, and he was kind of the same with Julia. It's a little less detailed, but just basically, if she's ready by the time for the Olympics, she's going. So we there's so much that we cannot know. Another reason why guessing was so hard because I'm trying to put myself in the mind of like a very nice Macedonian man, <laughs> and he's much smarter than me. So I was just like, eh, well, yeah. I guess I'll just hit send. Yeah. No, I think I mean, and we've we've had this conversation before, right? But I think. It has been really interesting because I think the kind of the narrative from people who are around this team are like, oh, well, this is kind of decided. Right. And I don't think that's accurate. I think that there has been I think that there are certainly 14 ish people who are absolutely going right. Yeah, there are there like. I know Becky Sauerbrunn, again, to use an example, said like, I'm not, I don't believe I'm on that roster until I get the phone call from Vlaco, right? But there are certain players where you're like, you are going. Kristen Press is going to Tokyo. I don't think we need to to have an argument about that. (laughs) Right. We don't need to have an existential crisis over. Yes. Yeah. So I don't, I just think that in terms of quite like, again, people have so many questions about kind of these last final spots. Some people have kind of come to the conclusion that they're done. I really don't think that they're done. Like I think that it is going to be a legitimate conversation with the entire technical staff. It's also not just flat. like, I don't think he is probably going to get the final call, but I certainly would think that it is an entire technical staff, Kate Markgraf, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Everyone is probably going to be on a very painful Zoom
2: <laughs> this Blacko entire
1: weekend, like, yeah, Blacko seems like the kind of person where if you brought him a really well thought out PowerPoint, he'd be like, "Oh, that's interesting," and then you would really take that and be like, "You yeah. could convince him using data." He's not someone who's like, "Well, this player is my favorite, so she's going right. regardless yeah. of what the numbers say." Yeah, this is not like a vibes only roster, <laughs> right? It's not. It's not though. Like, and that's yeah. What I have found also very interesting, too, is that, you know, again, experience and youth are being balanced. Right. And I think that debate only feels so present because everything did get delayed a year, because I think if we had been been having this Olympics, there would not have been quite the pushback against folks coming back, you know, like Rapino, Lloyd, Morgan are all, were all kind of MIA, right. For a year. And then coming back. Although I think both on, honestly, all three of them have kind of already shown like they're fine. Right. Yeah. Like I know that <laughs> Carly Lloyd is, a, is a, is a own entire argument that I'm going to sidestep entirely, but like in terms of what we've seen from them in terms of minutes, performance, all of that kind of stuff, at least, like, I, I don't think that there are really any question marks about any of them. I mean, remember, if we'd gone last summer as well, Katerina Macario would not have been a- available. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. For me, right at the moment, my entire brain process really is trying to wrap my head around if Christy Muse is going to make this roster or not. Like, that's – and that's a very <laughs> interesting spot to be in because I, yeah. like, I personally have now really – come around to Christy ulis helps you win now and putting mm-hmm. her on that roster to me is actually like i was like no that that really does make sense the other player that i'm both like personally and professionally invested in going is midge purse i was gonna say it's gonna be yeah. midge purse <laughs> yeah but i feel like there's maybe less space to do the like oh yeah she is isn't she with Christy Mewis? I feel like you either think Mitch Purse is 100% going, or you think Mitch Purse is 100% not going. And I actually, I I played myself because I'm actually not sure what side of that line I'm on. Um, we saw the black coat. He said specifically, I played Mitch for 90 minutes, starting her at right forward and then shifting her into right back specifically, and that seems so intentional to me. Yeah. It's like why would he do that unless? He's like, I've got a plan in mind and I need Midge for that.
0: Yeah. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
1: I mean, and that's purse. In terms of like, if we want to talk about versatility on a roster, Midge Purse is going to provide you a lot more than any other player. Basically, like I think Emily Sonnet is now kind of in that. Mm-hmm. that group as well, knowing, okay, that there's your potential backup for Julie arts or at least one of them. Right. I think yeah. Lindsay Horan in the six was honestly a, a more successful experiment. Like if you're going to slide someone else into that spot,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, I thought Lindsay Horan played super well at number six. Like it's not where she should be on the field, but to be fair, the number six traditionally <laughs> over the past decade with the U S national team is generally not where players should be. So yeah. <laughs> like it's fine um sorry lauren holiday that you <laughs> you took that one for the team for a while but well, midge purse playing yeah f- the first half as a forward getting that goal like also just midge Purse's celebration like being in person kind of directly above uh-huh. <laughs> watching that like you could just see her entire body like vibrating with probably relief right uh-huh. <laughs> But also, just like, there it is. Like, I'm showing you. Yeah. There it is. What I loved about her, Sally, was like, there's no artifice to it. It was just like this pure expression. And honestly, what reminded me of in The Matrix, when (laughs) I'm so sorry, in The Matrix, when Neo is like finally confident enough to stop running and turn around and face um, Agent Smith, right? Mm -hmm. And then. He like strikes that pose that and like all yeah. the dust suddenly shakes off of him. And you're like, whoa, this dude is serious. <laughs> He's going to win, you know. <laughs> but that 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 same vibe that I got from Purse where she's like, you know, notice yeah. me. I'm here. I'm not scared anymore. Like, do your worst. In terms of versatility as well, it's not just right forward and right back. We've seen at Gotham the way Freya Kuhn likes to play her is that she wants her to be able to switch Easily between that left, middle, and right channel as necessary. Yeah. And I'm sure Vlatko knows that. Yeah. I mean, you could also potentially use Midge Purse as a as a backup number nine as well. Yeah. She can be a nine. She can be your right forward. In a pinch, she can, like, underlap, switch with Kristen Press if need be. Like, they can cause a lot of havoc there. Versatility. Yeah. Okay. I think I talked myself into 100%. <laughs> She's calling. Thanks, man. <laughs> Yeah. I, I think Midge has been a player that I've been, like quietly very worried about because I think that she has been obviously putting in a lot of work. Right. And also doing a lot of stuff on the side that is not really her job, but like in terms of the black Women's player collective and that leadership, right. Like she's doing a lot right now. Um, But I do in, in terms of versatility. And I think that we have seen this payoff for, for players. I think it is kind of an impossible situation to put players in sometimes to, to say like, Hey, are you ready to play four different positions on an international level at a major tournament, right? Like that's not, that's a very wild ask to put on Mitch Purse. But also I think we have seen in her time in the NWSL, like she can hit all of these different positions. I don't know if outside back is her strongest one. I don't think it is, right? I think we all prefer Mitch Purse up top, but still that does give you... I mean, Midge Purse could essentially count against three different buckets on this team, really. She has a right back. Like, not every um, Olympic game is going to be a nail-biter. Like, with respect to all of our opponents and potential opponents, not every game is going to be a nail-biter. So, you know, Midge Purse, if maybe her defensive development isn't quite... You know, at its peak yet, I I firmly believe she could get there. Um, but you know, in a high pressing system against an opponent that you know is not particularly going to be able to get in behind you. Yeah. So I mean, and to yeah. be fair, like we're there is a starting right back right now, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who is clearly going to Tokyo. So that, that, that does also, I think, take some of that pressure off, right? Like we're not also saying like, oh, midge purse is going to be on this roster and going to be the team's starting right back. Like that is not likely, but midge purse gives you three different things potentially from the bench. And I think think that's really probably hard to overlook on an 18 player roster. Yeah. You took the words right out of my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's talk. You need it. Yeah. Let's talk goalkeepers. Um, In your article, you had French going, which I agree with. Yeah. I mean, so I let off that article with like counterintuitively, the more he plays player in these summer series, the less likely there might be to go. Right. Because of the known quantities like lens through which we're viewing a lot of this. But at the same time, Campbell didn't see a second on the field. It was what Nair French Nair. Mm hmm. He he wasn't even willing to give Campbell time against uh, what the second game was Jamaica. Right. And they beat them for nothing. Yep. Not not even in that situation. Yeah. Well, and and French got that entire game. Right. And then my, my question for Vlako after the game was like, so great that you play French, but also that that game does not give you anything for evaluation purposes for a potential roster that was part of the other thing where like the summer series, so much of it was like, I'm sure Blacko and his staff got stats and stuff, but you know, watching it was like, well, did we learn anything new about this team? Kind of yeah. not really. It was kind of more adding existing data to what we already have. And I think that probably maybe we'll see a little bit more of this when it comes to the two sendoff games against Mexico next month, um, we'll have the roster known and, Maybe that'll be what he uses to kind of kick people into the tournament mindset, where it's like, this opponent. I mean, Nigeria was tough; they were a good team. They played their plan. They didn't look tired. Yeah, you know, from from Texas and everything. So um, that was fine. And then we'll hop into another opponent who could give the United States, you know, uh, potentially a rough time. Maybe even slip. <laughs> I mean, Mexico, I think Mexico is perfectly capable of putting up like a good, like, I I think that these are actually really good warm up games Yeah, for the Olympics in terms of like, in terms of CONCACAF opponents, right? Like, yeah, you're probably not going to get Canada. So no, I think, I think that they're actually going to provide really good tests. And also, I mean, this has been the the whole storyline the entire year is kind of like, what what is up with the finishing on this team right now? Right. Like the same answer keeps happening of just like, we'll we'll fine tune it. Like our touches need to be more sophisticated. Right. And it, it just kind of keeps getting kicked (laughs) down the road where we have not seen kind of that in terms of some of these chances. Right. And like, I mean, the Kristen press goal um, in Austin was a very good one. Right. But some of the, the goals against Jamaica were, I mean, Alex Morgan getting goals is good, and I think it was needed at, at this point, but also if you're playing against a, a better opponent, like that goal is not going to be scored. So it's just kind of like, okay, so if we're if the U.S. is going to play Sweden, <laughs> right, the finishing probably needs to get a little bit better. Right. And that like there have been two very convincing performances over the past. Well, post COVID, I would argue, which was the one against the Netherlands in in the Netherlands and the one against France in France. Hmm. And those yeah. are the two games where I'm like, there's that team, <laughs> right? Like that. Okay. Cause I mean, even that first game back against the Netherlands, right? Like everybody was going, including myself, like, We can't really judge this because this is the first game Mm post-COVID. The team hasn't been together. And then they looked like they looked unbeatable at times. That may be what happens in the Olympics. Sometimes they show up at the tournament and they're like, they kick in that tournament brain and they all turn into, you know, their elite 1% of 1% (laughs) athlete brain, you know, that makes sense. It's like unfathomable to me. Yeah. And then, like, Becky talked about how um, tournament environments are so stressful. Like, after the last one, she had an ulcer. Yeah. So, like, they're going to turn on that whole crazy, not crazy, but like, you know, that whole really wild tournament mentality. And they may get there and it'll be fine. Yeah. I mean, and I think the other thing that we're probably not just looking at some of the international results that have been happening. <laughs> Right. I feel like everybody's kind of in a weird space right at the moment. I mean, I don't know what's happening with Australia at all. Like I couldn't tell you what, what is happening in Australia, but like, you know, Canada and Brazil are, are playing zero, zero draws. Nether- um Italy is beating Germany. Right. Like, and some of yeah. these teams are not necessarily going to be in the Olympics, but I, I do feel like generally the international landscape is everyone is still kind of in this weird, like, are we back? Are we good? Like, are we? Are we good? And I think it will settle by the time we get to twenty twenty three, right? But for this mm-hmm. particular tournament, everyone has gone through the exact same problem, and and the the prevailing logic is the U.S. is in a much better position to kind of like withstand that shutdown just because of the resources and the approach to it. And I think that does still stand as of right now. I think that's fair. I mean, it's not fair to the rest of the world. Like, we can talk about, <laughs> you know, imperialism and COVID response later. But, you know, just looking at the number of games that they've had in 2021 alone. Yep. Compared to everyone else. camps yeah. that they were able to call and the players being able to play in uh, NWSL games. So, oh, and, you know, and, and some WSL games as well. Because I think Kristen Press looks like the best forward in the pool right now by, like, a long shot. Yeah clearly she had a good time at man city. I mean, um, United. Oh my God. <laughs> You're- <laughs> You're like- <laughs> uh, yes. Although I, I am kind of like, I think it's good. Right. She talked about getting that little bit of a break between the end of the season in England yeah. and then coming back. Like that's actually a really interestingly timed break where she got, I mean, it was not like a huge one. Um, a few folks were kind of acting like she had like this huge layoff after the end of the the WSL season, but she got like two or three weeks off, right. Got to go Mm -hmm. back to individual training, which like she has spoken about before in terms of really enjoying individual training. And I think that was a good little mental reset before an international tournament where you're still pretty much able to carry that form through, but you get kind of this mental reset of yeah, season is done back here, moving into tournament mode, And clearly that paid off (laughs) this past week. Kristen Press has spoken a lot of times about, she used to be a player that really lived in her own head and it really stressed her out. And she's had to work really hard to kind of become a person who enjoys soccer and doesn't go into rage blackouts. Like (laughs) like she said, she used to do at Stanford. Um, And we've seen it for a lot of players, actually. The enforced 2020 break, a lot of them came back and they're bawling out and you're like, oh, They weren't bad. They were just tired. Right. Which I think is, it speaks to, you know, I think this discussion is happening probably more on the men's side. Right. In terms of all of them coming from like champions league and then immediately going into euros. Right. But Mm -hmm. the question is kind of like, is there too much soccer? Yeah. Yeah. Like overuse is a legitimate thing. And so I think everybody actually getting that time off. Yes, absolutely. Like, I think it was frustrating in many ways for players, but then I also think that we have seen some of the like mental benefits of like actually getting some time off to enjoy life (laughs) as a person. The ultimate ultimate example is um, when Carolina Marace was head coach of Canada, I think before the 2011 world cup, she put them all on residency in Rome because I guess she wanted to be in Italy, but they were isolated from everybody for weeks. And at the time they were like, oh, this is the next step for Canada soccer. But then they became dead last in the 2011 Olympics. And what came out afterwards was they felt really isolated and they kind of weren't in touch with what they were playing for and they missed their families. And it wasn't like a holistic approach to them as a soccer player where, you know, it kind of makes sense where when you feel good in all aspects of your life, (laughs) you'll perform better in your job, which is something that, you know, we're trying to get corporations to understand right now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. After, you know, COVID changed a lot about the labor force, but anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think it is interesting to see like what teams that approach kind of works on, because I mean, the U S women's national team, right. Went to Tottenham to their training facility before the 2019 world cup and did Mm -hmm. kind of that little intensive, but it was not for, it was for what, Mm -hmm. two to three weeks. So like, that seems to be like, okay, good. We get this little time to ourselves before we head into tournament mode, but that's still also, I mean, the World Cup lasts 33, 34 days add on a couple of weeks before that, like they are gone from home a really long time. And I I think Mm -hmm. that that is absolutely a factor that almost never, I don't know if anyone ever talks about, like in terms of performance of just like being in that tournament mode for a very long time, living out of hotels, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. When I got home from France, I felt like I had been scrubbed with like steel wool from the inside out. And I just did not know how to fit. I had to spend literally like two days sitting in a dark room by myself. Also, I'm like a deep introvert, so I needed the recharge. But like, I literally had to sit in a dark room with no stimuli for two days at minimum, to just kind of become functional again in, like, my old home base. Yeah. I just remember getting home from France and being like, please give me all the vegetables. You
0: I want to find
1: water, and air conditioning. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it was... Uh, France, even as a journalist, was a lot to handle. So, it yeah. Tournament yeah. mode as a player, I can only imagine being way more intense. And I think Tokyo, especially in terms of protocols and, and Ugh. all of that kind of stuff is going to be, and, and to be fair, you know, the U S national team has stayed fairly locked down, right? Like they are still approaching this as a, as a bubble um, amongst themselves. Um, and that will continue through the send off series, mm-hmm. which I think is the right call just also, because if they get one positive result, like things could go sideways very, very quickly. <laughs> so very understandable, but then that just adds another layer right to getting through the Olympics and having that kind of hanging over you as well. Like this is not a standard Olympics where like, yes, the soccer teams are almost never in the Olympic village until the very end. Right. Like that's the goal is to get to the village. So the experience is different, but now having COVID protocols (laughs) hanging over you, it's just like, yeah, that's not going to be pleasant either. I think fans should be aware that I, those protocols extend to staff as well. We've heard that like staff is gonna be limited. So, you know, in the, in the World Cup, we saw articles about, you know, kind of the little um, support team that they travel with that's responsible for their equipment and nutrition and their training. And then even that, like the, the media team, when we were in France, there was more than one media person mm-hmm. because they had to, it's such a tough job and that's all gonna be severely limited like the support personnel as well, so the team is gonna not have the usual. It's not amenities, but like the 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 logistics and the, yeah, the infrastructure and around them. the infrastructure is gonna be limited as well. Yeah, I don't know. It's gonna be interesting. Mostly, I think both of us are just hopeful for this roster to get named sooner rather than later so that way i know it's just i think it really is i know you know hayo spoke about kind of that switch being flipped for players right because then you Mm -hmm. know right and then you get to like actually go from we're competing to a spot to this is the team like we're we're ready to go but i think that also you know this has been a full extra year of (laughs) roster (sighs) speculation and and does this play you know Mm and I don't know. I mean, I think it's interesting from from just kind of a reporting point of view to have to live through an extra year of it. But then I, I also just think we're getting kind of a taste of what the next cycle is going to be like. Because I think the 2023 cycle and how this generation gets shifted out into the next generation is going to be more intense than anything that has ever happened on this team before. Except mm-hmm. maybe like the 99ers being phased out. Like this is this is the generation of this team that people truly connected with from like a new fan point of view. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how the next cycle goes. Right. Maybe it's some um, ghost to talk about it now, but maybe after the Olympics or next episode of the podcast, at least we could do <laughs> post Olympic retirement predictions. I mean, I just think like, are, like our are, are fans ready for a, a Becky Sauerbrunnless team. I don't think they are emotionally. Oh, I'm not <laughs> so ready. <sorry. laughs> you just closed your eyes. And, like, did. I did. I did. Yeah. Went through your body. <laughs> I, I have not even, I'm mentally like Megan Rapinoe knows that she's got like the world is her oyster, right? Yeah. Like she is whenever she's ready to be done it's not like we're never going to see Megan Rapinoe again. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I think that's going to be kind of an easy one for people to wrap their heads around Becky Sauerbrunn. No, but yeah, I mean, I think that there is, and we saw it between 2015 and 2016, right. Which Mm -hmm. did in a, in a lot of ways, make the 2016 Olympic roster a little bit easier just because, you know, Abby had retired. Lauren holiday had retired, like a whole bunch of people stepped away from the team and it made the 2016 roster a lot <laughs> less stressful in a lot of ways. I have a lot of thoughts and feelings, but I will save it for another episode. <laughs> I don't think you—you you just don't look emo. You didn't get a lot of sleep traveling back from Texas <laughs> last night. I don't think I want to put you through that. I mean, to be fair, well, well what are what are you going to say? Let's let's find out. You oh, already hinted okay, at okay. Becky Sauerbrunn retiring, okay. and I think that's mentally the thing that was going to shut me down the most. <laughs> I think the three big retirements right off the top of my head will be, Pino, sour bun and Carly Lloyd. Maybe that's the Carly Lloyd thing is a foolish thing, because I think Carly is going to go as long as her body lets her go. And her body is some kind of like Terminator machine where she just puts nutrition in and fitness comes out. You know, she's got it, a well-oiled yeah. machine there. Um I, I think, like, are people ready to see basically, like, I think the new back line is going to be some combo of like Tierna Davidson, Alana Cook, maybe Sonnets in there. And then some of these new kids that are coming up out of college. I mean, think about it. Becky Sauerbrunn emerged kind of in 2011 at mm-hmm. that World Cup as a dominant presence. And it's 2021. That's 10 years if you were a kid or a tween in 2011 forming your first emotional attachment, you are now in college or an adult who can drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the I just cannot fathom going through that development period as a fan of this team and then seeing these people retire I it might be it might have been the same emotional attachment that maybe we had going through with like when Mia ham retired. Yeah no, I think so. I think so for sure. so. Yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm at. Um, I had more thoughts, but we're we're veering into like very sentimental territory. So. <laughs> we are. I think that I, I mean, I don't know. And I think I'll be curious to see if we get that split too of do they step away from the national team but continue on in NWSL, right? Yeah. Because that that was kind of, I mean, I don't think that Heather O'Reilly was like entirely in control of her national team exit. Right. In terms of another one that gave me a lot of emotions as it was happening. uh Right. But it's not like she was a bad NWSL player once she was not on. the like, you are Mm -hmm. still perfectly capable of playing in the national women's soccer league and still adding something to a team. Yeah. I think yeah, after 2021, there's still going to be plenty of teams that would be, like, delighted to have Becky Sauerbrunn on their team yeah. or Carly Lloyd. Yeah. I mean, and to be fair, they're both playing in their home market, so it's not also, like, it's a hard ask for them to still right. go to games. But... Right. I would love it if, in 2022, Carly Lloyd, fueled by the rage of, like, <laughs> time betraying her by continuing to march on with her without her consent drives Gotham to a national championship. Like just purely fueled by this, like her raging against, you know, her, her, her destiny. Or she splits her time between an NFL team and (laughs) Gotham (laughs) FC, right? Like, you know, she, now that you said it, I want it (laughs) because it's more chaotic. (laughs) She's, she's kicking in the NFL on some weekends, and look, she goes over to the Giants, kicks for them, and then comes play, come and plays for Gotham. Double headers. Synergy. Yeah. I mean, her fitness, she's capable of it, so.
0: And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct TV, satellite free. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. All right. We have no idea when the roster is going to drop.
1: <laughs> Zero. <laughs> We keep getting asked, and I keep going, I don't know. Um, we know that it's before the send-off series. I assume, I, I my guess is probably early next week. Yeah. Just because cell teams have to be notified that they're losing yeah. players, right? Vlaco said at a press conference he'll know within a few days yeah. after the summer series. Like, they're all holed up somewhere, like debating, probably over the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think it's just a matter of that being communicated, right? Both to players, to NWSL teams, to communication staff as yeah. well, since obviously the roster is going to be kind of a major event as well. But yeah, it's, it is way more imminent now. And now it's just kind of this final weight. And I have to say, like, it feels a lot more comfortable f- from this spot, than probably what Christy Mewis is feeling right at the moment. Um, do you know what I really hope is that Vlatko gave them some kind of like hard deadline where he's like, you will absolutely know by this date, instead of just being like, you might know in a few days, you might know in a week or two, I don't know, we have a lot of stuff to work on. Like it's, it's entirely his prerogative to do that and be like, I might have to take more time, but just for the players' sake, you know, just yeah. imagining them sitting there hitting refresh over and over, like they're waiting for a package, but much more intense. Yeah, you know, or waiting outside the theater room to see if <laughs> Mr. Shu has posted the cast list. <laughs> <laughs> oh, who's going to be the lead? Yeah, it's um, I I I personally would not want to be in that spot but no. um, you know they're used to it and they're used to coping yeah. with it and handling it and it's not something that I would ever do and that's why I'm a normie and they are who they are yeah. alright well we will end on that note and yeah I would just say I think both of us are ready to as soon as we know the roster's incoming drop everything and <laughs> I just I, I really think we're not going to be surprised by it in the end but yeah if there's uh-huh. even one surprise on this roster, I will be surprised. <laughs> does that make sense? Yes. Even though that is also traditionally how surprises work. But yeah. yes, it does. <laughs> All right. I right. You're just mad at me because I inflicted so much psychic damage on you <laughs> on this podcast by talking about Becky Sarban re- retiring and making a Glee reference. You're just yeah. mad. Uh, that's a real one-two punch for me, yeah. who's only okay. had now one cup of coffee. So... All right, Steph, uh, you can find both of us at The Athletic, also on Twitter. You know how to find both of us. That's fine. All right, so let's also bring Paul Tenorio in once again, bringing us everything we need to know on this Olivia Moultrie lawsuit. Okay, so Paul is here because late night we got some, some updates on Olivia Moultrie. Paul, why don't you just give us the, the highlights?
2: Well, uh, I think the most important thing to take out of it is that Olivia Moultrie unsurprisingly was granted uh, the preliminary injunction, which means that essentially the temporary restraining order was upheld and and more permanence was given to um, a judge's order for the league to no longer enforce its age rule. What stood out to me about the decision was just how strongly the judge made clear that she didn't find any merit in the NWSL's arguments on multiple levels, um, both in their arguments for pro-competitive justification for the age rule, uh, where they argued that uh, it would cost more money um, and that no U.S. women's national team player had ever played before under the age of 18, and thus it wouldn't harm Olivia to not play professionally before age 18, Um, but also that... Um, She basically found that the evidence they presented, if anything, kind of strengthened or at least that the the documents that were filed, including the operations manual of the league itself, strengthened the case of Olivia Moultrie in showing that um, the league wasn't single entity, first of all. And second of all, that there was significant interest uh, in Moultrie um, by multiple teams in the league, which indicates that, yes, this rule was being enforced because you know, the NWSL tried to argue essentially that the rule existed, but technically the teams didn't have to follow it.
1: Yeah. One of the the funny things to me was the concept of the judge saying like, well, five teams put in a discovery claims on on Olivia Moultrie. And I was like, four teams want to mess with Portland
2: (laughs) For sure. And by doing so, they uh, maybe unintentionally strengthened Olivia Moultrie's case. Um, Yeah, I, I think, you know, for me what was interesting about this whole thing is is kind of the arguments that the NWSL made. I mean it's been fascinating to follow this case because you see how lawyers minds works at work and the technicalities that they try to use to create you know loopholes by which the NWSL might win the case. I mean the, the most shocking to me of those arguments was this concept that the rule was created before there were teams, thus it wasn't Um, a conspiracy between teams to have this rule. And even though the teams sign an affidavit every single year saying that they will follow those rules, the argument was that they never signed something explicitly saying they would follow that rule. And in that hearing, the judge actually asks, so you're saying that that's not an enforceable rule and that any team can do whatever they want because they didn't sign specifically to any rule. And he was like, well, you know, in good faith, they're following the rules, and she was like, "But you're saying it's not enforceable." And he was like, "Well, you know, the understanding is that they'll follow the rules," and I, I, I just couldn't believe I didn't understand where this this argument was going, and you know, neither did the judge. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, it it was uh, it was an interesting ruling to read, and I think it reinforced that my big question, which is why, you know, why is the NWSL yeah. fighting this? What do they gain? from an age rule? What do they gain from fighting this in court? And more importantly, what do they lose? Because now, in my opinion, this opens up a whole other can of worms about, you know, the, the CBA and the enforcement of rules that I think you could argue violate antitrust law as well in the absence of a CBA. So it, to me, you know, I, I just cannot wrap my mind around what the NWSL saw as a reason to even open the possibility for a judge to make the ruling that this judge made.
1: Yeah. Steph, I know that we we have discussed this. Do you, why is such a good question? (laughs) Because no one has a good answer. No one has a good answer for it. It does not, there's no part of it that makes sense where, again, you open up the door to the draft is now antitrust, right? Like, Every single discovery, every single roster process has been designed in the exact same way as the age rule and is now up for grabs and is now also obviously on the table in collective bargaining. Steph, do you have a good a good attempt at answering the why? No. <laughs> uh, but I do you know the most delight or empathy I felt was like the judge's clear frustration and how obnoxious they found digging through NWSL roster rules. And then I was like, yes, that's how it feels. (laughs) And, but the thing was this judge was empowered to tell NWSL off about it. And I was like, she's done, you know, everything that we've wanted to do for years. Yeah, it was a little bit cathartic. But also, yeah, it's like, well, now it happens. Paul, like, what's your sense as well on, like, the implication here around, like, single entity is going to cascade maybe elsewhere?
2: Yeah, I mean, first of all, let me just say I'm 100% on your level. You know, this coming from a guy who, uh, with, along with another super nerd on our staff, Sam State School, created a podcast that's meant to break down these MLS and NWSL rules that just make no sense and that are just yeah. so infuriating. And so listening to a judge, first of all, listening to the arguments of the lawyers trying to explain how these rules work, but them not really understanding how they work. And then the judge asking very obvious questions about, well, why do they do it this way? And I'm like, yeah, well, there's no answer to that question. Um, What's quite delightful. Um, you know, it is interesting about the potential for this ruling to Um, reverberate within Major League Soccer as well. Obviously, the structure of Major League Soccer is the same as the NWSL in that it is a quote-unquote single entity, but it's not a single entity. And actually, if you go back to Fraser v. MLS, in that decision, um, which MLS won, they won on um, essentially another argument, which is that they they weren't able – the plaintiffs were not able to show that MLS had market power over the entire market for – men's professional soccer players. And in that ruling, they actually say, the judges said, you know, we are not ruling on whether or not major league soccer is a single entity. And in fact, if we were um, to do so, you know, we would probably find that it's not a single entity. However, we are deciding this case on this other area. And so this does not need to be decided in in this court case. And so, yes, you, this is the first time where a judge has basically put a spotlight on the structure of professional soccer in the United States and said, you're not a single entity. Um, MLS now is more protected than they were when Frazier happened because they have a CBA. The CBA happened two years after the Frazier decision came through. And um, essentially CBA and what you decide in a CBA is protected from antitrust law because it's been bargained by the Players Association. So right now I think Major League Soccer is feeling pretty good in regard to their rules and that side of it, because they have an agreement in the CBA that says we aren't bargaining these things, but the union is, is accepting of these rules. Um, and, you know, for, from that perspective, I think it helps, but does it open them up to potential other arguments down the road? Absolutely. I think as some, as one lawyer I spoke to last night told me, MLS doesn't want this decision floating out there now. And now it's there. It exists, you know, and they can't do anything about it. And so will there eventually be a lawyer who looks at this and says, okay, let's challenge this again, whether it's, you know, in the NWSL saying draft, discovery, no free agency, all those things are against antitrust law, or whether it's somebody that says, hey, maybe I want to go after the business structure of major league soccer, or try to make an argument, um, legally against them in, in violating antitrust law in another way, I don't know. Um, but certainly, I don't think anyone's happy that this got to this point where a judge would put that into a legal ruling. All
1: right. Here's the most mystifying thing to me, which is on its surface, I don't understand why NWSL would fight so hard specifically against people being able to play in the league before age 18. Like as you said, you showed in the ruling, like there's just no good explanation for it, and it kind of feels like they were arguing just because they didn't like being called out on the rule, and they're like we didn't want to deal with it. But NWSL shifts rules around all the time to suit their purposes. I don't understand why this league that prides itself on like adapting and overcoming is wasn't <laughs> able to. It's so nimble, to- Steph. yeah, I know. It's so nimble. Light on their feet. We're able to like change direction at a moment's notice. I don't understand where that, where all of that animus, it feels like, was coming from. You know, like you guys are speculating, maybe there's something deeper at play here, like some kind of consequence in terms of like their labor relations that that we can't quite put our finger on that they're more worried about. But on its face, it seems like they were arguing against this just because they're like, well, that's our rule and we made it and we make the rules here. You don't tell us what the rules are. We say what the rules are. That's what it felt like there was I think for me, though, like the one real factor that I think, especially in 2013, right? Like when they're coming up with this concept, my I would put money on this. The NWCL did not want to be responsible for minors. (laughs) There was no like you have to follow safe sport. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff that needed to be happening. And we have seen the history of women's soccer in this country. They can barely take care of adults half the time. Like, do they want to be responsible for a 15-year-old and have all of these other legal obligations and liability hanging out because they have a 15-year-old in the league? No. And that, like, for me, that's where it started. And then the question becomes, as you get more professional, as you as you figure things out, right? Should there have been a path to, had they come up with, we've been talking about a homegrown rule in the NWSL for how many years now? If they had gotten that far, this probably wouldn't have been a problem.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there was a false sense of confidence because of Fraser that they would be able to win this case. Um, and I think that contributed to taking this on. Um, because, you know, MLS didn't have a CBA at the time of Frazier, and they were able to win that case. But there's a significant difference in this and in, in kind of what the market power was for MLS, So that matters. But I, I do think that, um, you know, what's interesting to me is they make the arguments about those hurdles in 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 signing minors right the legal costs of making sure you're um complying with state law in all of the different states where olivia moultrie or any other minor may play and the cost of making sure you're in compliance at the facility not just when you're traveling but you know are you know is the player showering in the same showers as the adults on the team you know is the locker in the same locker room as all those things that they have to come to compliance with but you know and this is speculative, but some people I was talking to were saying the cost of fighting this legal case far exceeds the cost it would take to make sure that your rules are compliant with those laws, especially because we have to acknowledge that there has been at least some sort of working relationship between Major League Soccer and NWSL. I think we we have to acknowledge that because their rules are so similar um, that there's clearly been a borrowing or a discussion. We know that there are owners who own teams in both sides. Merritt Paulson um, obviously is on the product strategy committee in Major League Soccer, which comes up with these rules. Um, so it's not like you couldn't reach out to Major League Soccer and say, what have you done to get in compliance with these rules? Because they have homegrown players and they have people. So that to me was mystifying that you would you would go with cost as being prohibitive for, for this rule. Um, when you clearly didn't mind the cost of taking on this legal battle uh but i i just wonder now you know again what is what is the downside for nwsl owners there is none and and the crazy thing is you're in these cba talks if anyone doesn't want an age wants an age rule in place it's the players you know at this table the players are going to say Yeah, I mean, if you start to allow players under the age of 18, that's more competition for our jobs. We'd like to keep our pool as limited as possible, theoretically. The owners would want to expand their player pool and would want to go to younger players who are going to be cheaper. And so even from a bargaining justification, it makes no sense for the owners of the NWSL to be fighting for a rule that benefits the players more than the owners. I just I can't wrap my mind at all around the strategy here, other than they believed they could win and they wanted the win for what for what I don't know.
1: Yeah. on the on the meta level, Meg, you brought up a really good point. So I think there's good and bad here. You brought up like what makes sense for the league in season one no longer makes sense, which is a good thing, right? You don't want things nearly ten years later. Like, the rules that they had to put in place in order to just keep the league functioning. Because, yeah, some of the teams in Season 1 probably couldn't have dealt with the the logistics and the cost of having to come into compliance with having under-18 players. Like, it was really dire. They were barely functioning as it was. Situations changed. Every single team in this league should be able to handle that. On the flip side, it's bad because they didn't get ahead of it. And I think there was a period of stagnation, honestly, um, for a while, for a couple of years now, um, where the league just kind of sat there and didn't think ahead, like, where do we need to go the next couple of steps? So I think on the one hand, it's shown the league has grown, but on the other hand, it's exposed that the league is not where it needs to be in terms of thinking ahead and adapting. NWSL has always been reactive. Always. And it's just another, this is a symptom, right, of the of the fundamental problem of what comes next. But also the NWSL has borrowed a lot, right, in terms of raster rules from MLS, but also I fundamentally think the NWSL cannot be MLS 2.0 because that is only going to hamper it because NWSL is not, <laughs> it, it's in a much different like overall global market position than MLS is.
2: Yeah, well, you shouldn't want to be MLS, first of all, like you have the you have the privilege uh, or the I guess the advantage of seeing the missteps of Major League Soccer and saying, okay, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're going to do this, this and this instead. One, two, there's this fundamental difference, as we all know, between the level of soccer in this country for women's professional soccer and men's. The women's team is the best in the world. You have the best talent in the world in this country. So your strategy for growth should be completely different because you can be the best league in the world. Major League Soccer cannot be the best league in the world. It just can't. So fundamentally, the strategy for the NWSL should be drastically different. And yet these two leagues share a problem that Steph brought up. They don't think enough about where... Do we want to go and how do we get there it's far too often where do we need to be right now where do we need to be in six months you know and they don't think about the strategy beyond that and saying you know this is how to get there and and like from mls i think they did that actually fairly well for their first 25 years and now that they actually need to grow faster they can't because they haven't strategized for down the road they haven't looked that far like they used to and that's hamstringing them and in this case, I think the NWSL for a long time couldn't, to your point, in those early days, it was, how do we survive? How do we survive from this year to next year? How do we survive from that year to the next year? Well, now you have some permanence, right? You have some strength. You have uh, a real momentum behind the league and the sport in this country, ownership groups that are coming in that are strong, that want to grow the sport, that want to invest in the league. And and so that requires you to change your mindset from that short-term survival to Survival by long-term planning, and that's where I think this fell short. And and hopefully somewhere along the way, in that if not this case, then I think being forced to in the CBA negotiations, you have to start thinking long-term. At yeah. least you should be. Let's not <laughs> assume. Yeah,
1: like let's let's like slow our roll on on assuming that the smart thing is actually going to happen. But I I do think that. The league has also now opened the door so much wider for the players' association to have a much stronger position when it comes to CBA negotiations. Like, they basically were like, <laughs> hey, <laughs> now everything's up for grabs, right? Like, but free agency, I think, is going to be the defining, defining part of CBA negotiations. And there are certainly factions within the league that are pro-free agency, there are certainly factions within the, you know, and when I say the league, I mean like the board of governors, right? Like there are pro-free agency people and it's probably pretty easy to guess who they are. And then there are anti-free agency people and it's probably pretty easy to guess who they are. But those discussions are, are happening. Like how do they, how do they actually do this?
2: I mean, I would like to (laughs) see the strategy Meg, of sitting at that table now and saying, uh, oh, no, we're we're, we're going to restrict, literally restrict trade via no free agency after losing this court case. How? how? They're going to try it. I mean, that's fine. But I, if you're the NWSLPA, you're sitting back, you're reclined, your feet are <laughs> on the table, you know, and you're like, oh, oh really? No, look, antitrust litigation is not cheap, right? So, you know, it, it wouldn't be the, the best route for the NWSLPA. It would cost money. It would cost a lot of money to do it. But- you know, they got the leverage that's, yeah. that's, and that's what matters in CBA talks, you know, look at the yeah. difference in the tone between uh, if you look at MLS CBA talks, typically it's the league trying to pressure the players to come to the table, come to the table. And they're, you know, they're trying to force their hand and that, you know, whatever. And then this time around during COVID, it was the other way around where the players didn't want to come to the table. And, you know, they, the pressure was going back and forth the other way because it was all about leverage and when that leverage flips, you know, it's really amazing at how the tone of the talks change, right? The the MLS was scrambling. They were going public with everything, whereas before they hadn't because they were they were scratching for leverage. I don't see a, a world in which all of the leverage is not sitting on the NWSLPA side of the table. That is really, really, really important for these talks. And it's the first CBA. They can set a bar that it took three or four CBAs for MLS to get to free agency on the first one. And, you know, at a certain level, it's like restricted free agency almost doesn't matter because once you get it in there now with every CBA after that, you improve it, you improve it, you improve it. So if they can, you know, take this leverage and turn it into any form of free agency, you know, a limitation of things like discovery claims, um, you know, yeah. Who cares about the draft? You kind of look at that and say, okay, this is a normal American sport thing. You know, you have these points where you can say, oh yeah, you keep yeah. your draft. Yeah. We have free agency, you know, it's right. just, it, I think it's just a really, really great position for the LPA to be sitting right now and saying, all right, you want to get a deal done so you can avoid more antitrust litigation? No problem. We can cut a deal. Let's cut a deal. And, uh, and, and again, I just, I think the door was opened with this Olivia Moultrie case, which was so avoidable um, just by saying, yeah, you know what? The age rule doesn't really benefit anyone anyways. It doesn't really hurt us. It doesn't cause harm to the league. Um, Let's just, let's just get rid of it instead of fighting it in court. They didn't do that.
1: (laughs) It's just, as I, as I said on Twitter last night, like it just, it feels like such an avoidable, expensive stupid L that this league took and and again the fact that we keep asking why it's just not here's the thing that I'm waiting it's just not good I'm waiting for the third L because the first legal L that I think was in recently was their um, trans player policy I think that that was kind of a big swing and a miss from them maybe they meant well but they did not connect uh, and now this Moultrie case, and I'm waiting for a third thing, because I think that's going to demonstrate like a pattern maybe here of the league not in that area, maybe not being the most efficient. Yeah. All right, Paul, what 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 comes next? Do we know? Appeal?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the big decision that the NWF faces now, right? Do you appeal? Do you try to get a stay on this rule? Do you continue to drag this out and try to win something on an appeal that maybe closes the door to this leverage in the CBA negotiations, or do you settle? You know, you you you've come to a, some sort of arrangement with Moultrie, You get her the contract. You move on. This case is over, and you turn and pivot and focus all your attention on this CBA talks, right? And and look, the NWSL still has a chance on at that CBA negotiation to say you know, this is the leverage point that always exists in American soccer for the owners, unfortunately. We don't want to kill the league. We have to keep costs down, you know, free agency, unrestricted free agency will be too expensive. And then the owners will start spending too much and then the league will go under. It's the the typical MLS play. And it's a good strategy. No one wants these leagues to die. We don't want these leagues to die. You know, the players don't want the leagues to die, you know. So that to me is probably the best strategy is just to say, okay, we're going to take the L that's been handed to us and we're going to pivot and try to get something that looks kind of like a W in the CBA negotiations. Um, That might be the third L though, staff, like coming up here in the CBA (laughs) talks, right? When we see that final document, when we get there, whatever that is. Um, But those are the choices on the table. Do you appeal the decision, try to get a stay on this injunction keep Moultrie from ever stepping on the field and continue the fight while you negotiate on a parallel path, or do you say, okay, you know what, let's not put resources into this fight anymore. Let's give the CBA full attention and try to do the best we can there, um, to put the league in a position to be successful, right? That'll be the mindset of the league. And, and I think those are the two paths. You either parallel path it, you fight two fights at once, or you pivot. Um, and, and we'll see. I think we'll probably find out soon what they do.
1: All right. Well, on that note, I think all of us are probably mentally screaming a la Ross from Friends. <laughs> like, pivot, <laughs> please. <laughs> please be productive. We'll find out. All right, Paul, thank you for hopping on. Uh, I know that it was a late night for you trying to. I, I definitely understand the vibe of legal documents late at night. So Thank you for filling
2: us in. No problem. It was just doing my best Meg Linehan impression, clipping (laughs) clipping things from Pacer and putting it on a Twitter thread.
1: I did get a, I got an email from Pacer being like, a customer satisfaction survey is coming your way. And I was like, okay, well, unfortunately, I mentally associate your product with anger on my part. (laughs) So, (laughs) sorry in advance that my customer satisfaction, probably not going to be high. We'll find out. All right, Paul, thank you for joining. Steph, thank you for hanging around to talk legal stuff since you are also a, a much more legal expert than I am. So I have forgotten everything I learned in law school. I have a fancy oh, well. degree and nothing to show for it. I guarantee you, but thank you. Okay. All right, thanks, everyone. Thank you to Steph and Paul for their time. Obviously, stay tuned for plenty more on both the U.S. Women's National Team roster. We've got everything. Olivia Moultrie lawsuit. We'll have, co- we'll have you covered on both at the Athletic as always. One more thing: we've got back-to-back NWSL games on CBS this weekend, which means another big chance for big ratings. Tell your friends: Courage vs. Rain at 4 p.m. Eastern on Saturday. Again on Big CBS. Then Thorns vs. KC on Sunday, same time, same channel. As always, the home for the show is at fulltimepod.com, where you can find links to all of the major podcast platforms. If you're enjoying the show, as always, your reminder that ratings and reviews make a difference. One more call, subscribe to The Athletic, and you can support all of our women's soccer coverage right now at theathletic.com fulltime. My name is Meg Linehan. You've been listening to Full Time with Meg Linehan. You can always find me on Twitter and Instagram at It's Meg Linehan and my work at The Athletic. Full Time does not exist without the work and support of senior podcast producer Michael Zimmerman. I'm Meg. Thank you for listening.